0: Praise the Lord. There is an experiential side to our faith that adds something to the atmosphere. It adds something to the ambiance when the people of God gather together. It should. You know, if you've got a family that really have deep emotional bonds and they get along well and they love one another, I'm talking about your immediate family, perhaps even your extended family. But I suppose if I'm going to use an example, let me just use the family that lives in your home. If your immediate family is very close and has a very tender connection and has experienced some things in their relationship that abound their hearts together, you'll probably feel it when you come in to that kind of environment. You can tell when people really love each other, can't you? You ever been around a couple that really love each other? I love to see an elderly couple walking along holding hands like they're teenagers. I like that. That tells me that they haven't lost their connection. Sometimes with time, our connection can be lost. We can gravitate into different directions. That can happen in your relationship with your husband or wife, and your relationship with your family. You can start to gravitate into different directions. You grow apart instead of growing together. And the people of God are intended to grow together. Your family unit is intended to grow together. Part of us growing together is for us to experience some things together that bind us tighter. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's given unto us. We've been talking a lot about the love of God the last weeks. We don't do that as I've said here in several services lately. We don't do that because we have a plan to do it. We don't do it because that's the subject of the month or like the flavor of the month or that's the theme that we're on or the series we're preaching on. No, it's because that's what the Spirit is anointing right now. Seems like right now the Spirit's anointing that. God seems to be wanting to emphasize that we need to grow in our relationship with Him and with one another. That's what it comes down to. When you say, you're to love the Lord your God and you're to love your neighbor, those are talking about growing in your relationship with both of them. You know you don't love God or your neighbor in the way you should when you first begin to love them. When you first are touched by the love of God, this is the thing, you know, it is one of the most incredible experiences you'll ever experience to feel the love of God. But you know the first time you feel it is incredible and as all-encompassing as it might be in terms of your sins being dealt with when you come to Jesus. Do you realize you don't even know enough about God at that time to really love Him at the level you could once you get to know Him better? Isn't that incredible? That means as incredible as your initial conversion was, God doesn't want you to stay there in your relationship with Him. He wants you to get to know Him better. My wife, as you know, is celebrating her 40th birthday this week, and I can tell you from experience having done that seven years ago that I wasn't exactly excited. You know, you talk about celebrating something. I'm not sure once you hit four decades and past, you're celebrating anything at that point. If you're celebrating, you might be celebrating you got there, but you may not be celebrating that you are there. Brother Lee said if he was there, he'd be celebrating. Well, that's because you'd be reversing 50-plus years to get there, Brother Stevens. If I reversed 50-plus years, I wouldn't be on this earth. It's a matter of perspective, isn't it? And from our perspective sometimes, growth isn't always visible. We don't see how we're growing in our relationships. That's why we look back sometimes and think, I can't believe this many years have passed. It's hard for me to believe this many years have passed. My oldest daughter was running around here about the same age as her little brother is right now when we first came here. 2005, she was about the same age Elijah is now. And I gave her a hard time the other day. She was talking about Elijah being a handful, and I said, honey, so far Elijah has never run around the whole church building while I was up here talking, but you did. (laughs) And you didn't just do it when it was a small crowd here. You did it when we had a bunch of company and some other ministers sitting here with me from other churches. And that's when you decided it's time to see Daddy from the back of the church. Ran by, and as I thought I'd catch you, you just kept going laughing, waving as you went. It's amazing how time can pass, and... It passes so quickly, we don't realize if we're not paying attention to the things that are going on. And I said here a moment ago that there are some experiences we have that actually bind us closer together, and we ought never to forget those. It's easier to remember the negative things. We're built that way. It's easier to remember the hurts. It's easier to remember the disappointments. It's easier to remember the times you didn't get your way, which we all remember those times, don't we? If we remember those times easier, it's much harder to remember the good things because it's just the way our nature is. Our nature is not yet the nature of God, saints. The nature we have in us, if we are children of God, is to be developing into the nature of God, but it's not yet the nature of God, not in its fullness. We're still growing into the image of God. We're still growing into the image of Christ. Those are the same thing because if Christ is the image of God and we're to be the image of Christ, you see, That's something we've been talking about in some of our Bible studies lately. That's not a complicated connection. Scripture says we're to be made in the image of Christ, and it says He's made in the image of God. That's not a difficult theological connection to make. Jesus is a perfect reflection of God His Father. We're to be a perfect reflection of Him. If we are a perfect reflection of Him, we'll be a perfect reflection of God the Father too. That's what Matthew 5.48 is talking about. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. In the context in Matthew 5, in that part of the Sermon on the Mount, of the love of God, the kind of love that God has, we do want to develop in our growth as we go on. There are some stages of growth you go through that you don't have any control over. You don't have any control over your physical growth, other than possibly to maim yourself. You know, for a long time in Japan, it was considered more attractive to have very small feet, and they would literally bind their feet so they could not grow. The bad thing about that was they bound their feet so tight that they looked almost like hooves by the time they took the bindings off. They weren't beautiful. They were small feet, but there was nothing beautiful about them. But physically speaking, you're going to grow up whether you want to or not. That's not necessarily true emotionally speaking. And it's not necessarily true spiritually speaking. Emotional growth and spiritual growth are going to take some involvement on your part. You're going to have to be involved in the process. You aren't just going to naturally, emotionally grow up into a mature adult, emotionally speaking. And you certainly aren't going to just naturally grow up into a mature adult, spiritually speaking. Something's got to happen to change you. Something's got to happen to transform you, like this song was talking about. Fill my cup, Lord. Make me over anew. Make me over anew. We have to be made over anew, don't we? be made over anew, there's going to have to be some changes that happen. And part of those changes are our responsibility. Part of those changes are outside of our purview. They're not something we can do by ourselves. It's going to take God helping us, something we've been talking about a lot lately in our Bible studies. It's going to take God helping us. But you notice I said helping us. When someone's helping you, that isn't doing the job for you. I've seen people sometimes that appeal to somebody for help. What they really want is someone else to do the job. And so they say, can you come over and help me with my plumbing problem I have? They don't want help. They want you to come over and fix it. It is helping them, I suppose. But really, they're not going to be involved in the work. They're going to stand there and point out what's wrong while you fix it. That isn't exactly how God works. He's involved in the process, but he is helping us to grow. He's helping us to develop. We have to do our part in that, don't we? I want to be made over anew like this song was talking about in order to be made over anew some things are going to have to mature in our lives that's another subject it seems like we almost can't get off of the last month or two the maturation that is intended to be part of the Christian life maturation is the process of maturity the process of maturity it's intended to be part of the Christian life we've got to go through it don't we There's a lot of things that will cause that to happen. You know, when you're looking at children, I I was talking about that the other week, and the stages of development of a child and how that compares to spiritual children. When you're looking at children, the way children turn out is usually blamed on one of two things. They both start with the letter N, nature or nurture. Nature is easier to blame, you know, because you can always just say, well, they got that from their dad or they got that from their mom. I personally think nurture is far more common. Nurture is the kind of environment you're in, the kind of training you get, the kind of examples you see. It isn't just someone nurturing you, like giving you something, but that's really what it means. It means that you're in a certain environment that produces something. You're in a very hate-filled environment. Don't be surprised if that produces hate-filled children. If you're in a very immoral environment, a carnal environment, don't be surprised if the next generation becomes carnal. You shouldn't be surprised you do reap what you sow. And if you sow certain things into the environment of your family, if you're going to produce a seed, you're going to produce a crop after that, it's going to produce after its kind. So we have to be very careful to realize we have responsibility in this, don't we? In our growth and the growth of our families, the growth of our church, our responsibility is related to the nurture side of that. What kind of example are we? What kind of uh, environment do we create? This was an example of creating an environment here this morning. If that isn't something somebody's familiar with, they may not understand how that was an environment that's conducive to change. If worshiping in the spirit does not cause your spirit to be transformed, then it's just an emotional exercise and that by itself doesn't have a lot of value. There are a lot of times when people are And I'm putting this in quotes, worshiping in the Spirit, that it's really just an emotional exercise. And it isn't changing them, it's not transforming them. But one of the evidences of the work of the Spirit, I quoted here just a few minutes ago, that the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. You know, that happens in a number of ways. For one, the Holy Spirit is supposed to change us into something different than we were, make us more like God, which will mean we will have more of the love of God. That's at the heart of it. But you know, even in a worship service, the tenderness you feel when you're embracing somebody, you know they're suffering in their body or emotionally or whatever else they're going through. A lot of the times when we have a prayer line in our services, that is at the core of the prayer line. There are needs, emotional needs, physical needs, spiritual needs. Those are all things we might have needs for. Someone might be suffering. There's times someone comes forward for prayer because they're suffering. There's other times they're coming forward for prayer to be prayed for on someone else's behalf because they know someone else is suffering and they just want to be prayed for. God, will you please help them? I'll stand instead for them. They can't be here today. God, will you please reach this person where they're at? It creates something in the atmosphere that's very unique it is one of the ingredients that has produced the spirit of this assembly. Do you understand? The moving of the Holy Ghost in our services is one of the most important ingredients that produces the spirit of this assembly. Not just in a corporate environment where people are coming down front and worshiping or praying with one another. That helps to reinforce it, though, when you're praying with people. It reinforces the love of God. It reinforces a tenderness for others. It reinforces the motive of wanting to see other people receive the help they need, whatever it might be. But it also works in our own lives as we get more tender to the Spirit. The Spirit can change us in ways we may not realize we're being changed because we've gotten tender enough that God can remove things and we don't even know it's happening. He surgically deals with certain conditions in our life. So I want to be changed like this song said. It seems like, as I said, it's just almost a constant theme through our services. And I started talking here last week or the week before about the different stages of child growth and how those relate to our spiritual life. I don't know if I will continue on that or not. We'll see what the Lord wants because, as I told you, we don't just follow a pattern. But we ought to at least consider some elements of what God is doing so that we can understand where we're at. You know, you need to know where you're at. Lord, am I still just a child? We all are. But am I still just childish in my faith? Where do I need to grow? Where do I need to develop? Where do I need to get stronger? Don't be afraid to ask yourself those questions. You better ask them. You're not just asking yourself, though. You're really asking God. Lord, will you show me? Show me, Lord, where I'm missing the mark. Show me, Lord, where I could do better. Show me, Lord, what might be offensive to you that's in my spirit or in my actions. That's a safe prayer to pray. I've been saying this lately too, we have a lot of people in Christendom today that are much more concerned with God giving them things in terms of material things. Your safest prayer is not asking God for material things, it's asking God to give you what you need to be more pleasing to Him. An eternal hope is based on your life being in harmony with God's life, not based on how rich you are in this life or how healthy even you are. It's based on how spiritually healthy you are, how spiritually developed you are, It's not based on how much money you have in the bank. Why in the world would that be your highest target? It's not based on how strong your constitution or musculature is or whatever else that you're strong and fit and everything else. That is not going to help you in your relationship with God other than maybe to allow you to be healthy enough to come to church services or to stay up and study your Bible if you're in good physical shape and don't conk out because you've been eating too much sugar all week. We've got to grow, don't we? It's critical that we don't live in our childhood, spiritually speaking. We don't stay there. That's another problem with our culture in this day, is it's a culture of almost limitless childhood. People are acting more like children when they're physically adults than probably has ever been the case in the history of man. I think that would be true historically if you think it through. In the earlier stages of the history of mankind, there was not often the opportunity for you to act like a fool when you were an adult because you had to survive. Whether you were a hunter or a gatherer or whatever, if you fished or if you hunted or if you were a farmer in an agricultural type of a society, you did not have the time to goof off too much as a young adult. You wouldn't survive. We're in a day right now where it's so easy to just coast that that's what almost everybody wants to do. It's so easy to stay a child, and people stay a child emotionally far longer than probably they ever did in the history of man in this day. We can't afford to do that as spiritual children of God. We don't want to stay children. That was what was on my mind in one of these last services when I was talking about the different stages of growth that we go through as spiritual children, is that we cannot stay babies. I told you those growth stages in a natural sense. There's babies, which are infants essentially is what I'm talking about, then toddlers, then young children, then what amounts to youth, and then adults, and then I'm going to even make another stage, fully mature adults. Because you can be an adult but not be a fully mature adult. You still have some childishness in you. That's what Paul was talking about. This is something I mentioned here one of the past few weeks when he said in 1 Corinthians 13, When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. The way I thought and acted and spoke... We're childish. Now that I'm become a man, I have to put away childish things. Sometimes childish things are methods that are only productive when you're a child. And Elijah is still at this stage where if you give him a regular cup to drink out of, he is now proficient enough to be able to drink out of it, but he is not proficient enough to safely drink out of it. He can walk over and take somebody's glass and drink with no problem, not spill it at all. But don't expect him to do that every time because there's sometimes that he picks up a cup that doesn't have a lid and just lays it over on its side and over across the floor it goes. That's why they've invented these amazing inventions to protect parents from their children's mishaps. They've got these spill-proof cups, which sometimes are spill-proof and sometimes aren't. depends on how much they chew on them. We had a spill-proof cup that you could turn it upside down, throw it on its side, it wouldn't spill at all. But Elijah chewed away on the little edge of it and now there's nothing spill-proof about it. If it knocks down, it's going to leak out like any other cup. A lot of times the stage we're in, spiritually speaking, we're still drinking our baba and we haven't got to the point where we're mature enough to hold a real glass in our hand to be able to fill it. We've got to have somebody fill it for us. There's nothing spiritually wrong with that. When you're young in the Lord, you should have someone filling your cup for you. I don't want Elijah getting in the refrigerator and deciding to fill his own cup. One of the things that's sitting in that refrigerator right now is a big glass pitcher. It's heavy too. I don't want Elijah picking that up and thinking, I've got to fill my own cup. God forbid. He'll break it for sure. If he can even get it out of the refrigerator, he'll break it. He'll hurt himself. Even if he had the strength to lift it and pour, it's going to go all over the place. He doesn't have the dexterity to get it in the cup. And then even if he did, he's not going to stop pouring until it overflows. That's the nature of children. They don't think this is enough let's stop there. We can be like that in our spiritual life, you know, where we need somebody else to fill our cup. I'm not talking about the way the song says. We were singing in the song, fill my cup. Well, we want our cup to be filled. God is the origin of what's going to fill that cup though. But we've got to come to a place where we don't just have to be continuing to drink out of a spiritual sippy cup or a spiritual spill-proof cup. We've got to be careful with the Word of God. We've got to grow in our understanding of God. We've got to grow in our maturity. We've got to grow in our knowledge of the Word of God. I think there are a lot of people in the churches of this world that don't think they have to grow in their knowledge of the Word of God. They think, if I know enough to have a conversion experience, that's all I need to know. Have you ever considered that this Bible has a whole lot more information in it than just information about initial conversion? Do you think God just put that there for the advanced class? That's just for the honor students. No, he expects all of his children to have a comprehension of his word. He's not intending us to have some kind of a casual attitude toward his word. He wants all of his children to grow in the word of God. He wants all of his children to be nurtured by the spirit of God. I said, when it comes to children, it's either going to be nature or nurture. Now we've already are inheriting the wrong issues by nature already because we're by nature children of wrath, aren't we? By nature, we're children of wrath. That means we were born children of wrath. We were born under the judgment of God. But we don't have to stay children of wrath. We can become children of obedience. We can become children of the Almighty God. That's only going to happen through the work of the Word and the Spirit, though. You've got to have the Spirit and the Word working in you. There's where the nurture comes in. And it works almost the opposite. You know, as natural children, you're born with a certain nature, and that gets accented or affected by the nurturing you undergo. My son has a very strong will. I'm sure it's part of his nature. And if I'm going to be nice because it's my wife's birthday this week, I'll say it's because of my nature. Which, by the way, is isn't just being nice, it's being honest. The strong-willed stubbornness that my son has, I'll take all the blame for that. When you see in your children some of your own qualities, it ought to cause you to think about how you might need to be transformed in some things if you're still holding on to some of those qualities. But my child has a very strong will. He's had a strong will since he was a baby. He didn't get it by example. He didn't get it by nurturing. Nobody trained him to have a strong will. He had one from the beginning. Now that will of his can be affected by the type of nurturing we have in our home. If that is being tempered with the right kind of examples, tempered with the right kind of disciplines. People don't like the word disciplines, but you do realize that when a child is young, they have to have disciplines so do we. So do we. Let me make this very simple. Until you grow to the fullness of the maturity of adulthood God is looking for, you will always have to have spiritual disciplines in your life. And the only reason you won't when you grow to that level is because you'll be beyond the need for a law. You'll be a law unto yourself. And I don't mean that in the negative sense. I mean that God's law will be so deeply impressed on your heart, your heart up here, your mind, your feelings and intellect that you won't need any regulations to explain to you how to live right with God. You'll be so close in relationship with God that you'll be so like God that you will live without the necessity for boundaries because you'll be an individual with a nature like the nature of God when it comes to the moral nature. That's the fullness of spiritual adulthood. That's not where we begin, and that's certainly not where somebody rapidly reaches. It takes time for God to work on your spirit. It's time for God to work on your mind, on your heart, for you to grow. And we do go through very similar stages, as I said the other week, as children do. We come into relationship with the Lord like little babies who desire the sincere milk of the Word. They need to desire the sincere milk of the Word so they can grow thereby. They need to get rid of their babyhood. It's a precious thing to be in a state of babyhood, but it's not a permanent thing. We all love babies, and sometimes I think someone would like them to stay a baby because as they grow up, there's more challenges, aren't there? But I don't think any parent, if they're really thinking with any common sense, wants their child to stay a baby forever, do you? Don't you want them to grow up? Now let's just think about it from the most common sense perspective spiritually. You want your child to grow up enough that they can come to know God, don't you? If they stayed in a state of babyhood, they're never going to be able to come to know God because to know God, it isn't just a feeling. It's not just that God touches the heart of an individual. You have to grow to learn more about God. That's why it isn't enough just to feel a touch in a prayer line or in your worship or kneeling by your bedside praying or whatever other context you're in. It's not just enough to feel the touches of God. You've got to be transformed by your interactions with God. If we get too tied up in the concept that it's all about getting a touch... I'm not talking about for a physical sickness. I mean, sometimes focus on the fact that we want to get a touch. We want to feel the Spirit. Of course we want to feel the Spirit. Why would you not want to feel the Spirit? But that's not the object. The object is transformation. We want to feel the Spirit because that will help to encourage us and to strengthen us and to let us know God's present. But the end result is what we're seeking. The end result isn't just an emotional feeling. It's a spiritual transformation. So there's a deeper element going on. And one of the things that tells me that is going on is when I feel the love of God saturating our assembly and some of the things that occur at times. I can just feel the depth of the love of God in some action we're doing, some activity we're carrying out, visiting someone or praying at a bedside or whatever the case might be. You can just feel the love of God. You can't force that on people. You can't say when you show up somewhere, be nice, be courteous. You better, what in the world's the matter with you if you're going to show up somewhere and be rude? the well, the world's a matter with you if you're going to show up somewhere and not be loving? But it isn't natural to us to act right. It takes something changing us to make us want to act right. That's part of this song. One of these songs was an appeal. Yes. I'm longing for you. That's an appeal, isn't it? We want more of God. That's the sixth verse of Matthew 5 in the list of the Beatitudes. It says, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled that verse would go right alongside with that song i'm longing for you fill my cup fill me up fill you up with what you know when you're in a very low stage of spiritual maturity what you want to be filled up with is an emotional experience that is a low level of spiritual maturity if that's all you're looking for god give me a charge again charge me up well we need to feel that once in a while don't we? But if that's what you're seeking all the time, that is not really what we want to be filled up with. That's a good feeling to have. Wonderful thing when the Spirit fills you. But it's a better thing when the Spirit changes you. Lord, fill me up with the Spirit to the point where it doesn't just run off anymore. Fill me up to the place where it's not just a tingling anymore over me that I feel so nice. And then when I leave the atmosphere of the Spirit, I go right back to feeling how I felt before I felt it. That's not the end result God's looking for. He wants to fill you so full. You don't ever want to feel anything else. You only want to remain filled with the Spirit of God. I'm not talking about shouting, dancing, speaking in tongues, or some other manifestation. Those are manifestations of the presence of the Spirit. I'm talking about the Spirit being so present with you that you don't want to ever live outside of that covering. You want to live right in the presence of the God of heaven. You're going to have a hard time doing wrong if that's the kind of covering you're under. You're going to have a hard time going the wrong places, saying the wrong things, getting in the wrong spirit if God's Spirit is covering you. It'll be awfully hard to do that. But that's more than just what we think of as worship. That's changing things in your life that cause the Spirit to remain. Because there's things we can have in our life that the Spirit won't stay there very long. I mean in terms of it won't stay there in an active way because you've grieved it. You You can grieve the Spirit. There's a whole list of things you can do related to the Spirit that's worth studying. but I just want to focus on that one for a moment. We don't want to grieve the Spirit. Now, one way to grieve the Spirit is if the Spirit is affecting you and you're not responding to it, you can grieve the Spirit. If the Spirit is touching something, and I mean anointing something, whatever it might be, someone's testimony or a message, and you don't respond, you can grieve the Spirit. If God's looking for a response, you're grieving the Spirit if you don't respond. You may be grieving the person who's speaking. If somebody is broken in their heart over something and you're just calmly, coldly looking at them and not responding to that, you may grieve them. But if it's the Spirit of God, you'll grieve the Spirit. But if the Spirit's trying to work on you and you resist it, you'll really grieve the Spirit. There's another thing. You can resist the Spirit. God forbid we'd resist it. I'm not talking about the Spirit causing a manifestation to occur. I'm talking about the Spirit changing you, the Spirit attempting to transform your thinking. I don't want to grow up. I like the feeling of being a child. When you're a spiritual toddler, so to speak, toddlers usually start around one year of age, that's when disciplines and teaching can start to be introduced. Up to that point, that child doesn't understand what you're trying to tell it, doesn't understand what you're trying to communicate. You try to take a six-month-old child and try to teach them the difference between right and wrong, other than in a very direct sense, like you might smack their little hand. And a lot of present scholars, so to speak, think that that's not even the best approach to take with a child that young because they don't understand. I've tried to tell my children that you can't discipline the cats. Not because I don't want them disciplined. Maybe I don't. Maybe I have too much of a soft spot in my heart for animals and don't want to see them get chased down by the the children and spanked or whatever. But the fact of the matter is cats don't understand discipline. A dog does. There's one of the significant differences. If you're a dog lover or a cat lover, don't put me on one side or the other. I like all animals. But there is one advantage of a dog over a cat in terms of trainability. You are going to have a hard time training the cat to do anything it doesn't want to do. You can train a dog to do some things it doesn't want to do. A dog's memory is different than a cat's. A dog can understand for a little longer than a cat why it might be in trouble. If it tore up your cupboard full of food and it's sitting there with a smirk on its face, It probably knows if it gets punished why. A cat will do that and not have any understanding whatsoever why you're punishing it. They'll be shocked. Why would you punish me? What did I do? Their memory is already forgotten they tore up the couch five minutes ago. They're on to the next thing they're trying to tear up. And they're wondering why you're punishing them when they haven't done it yet. We're a lot like that sometimes. Little children go through stages where they don't understand punishment or discipline you can't apply that kind of discipline to the life of a newborn child. There's people that come into church that are brand new. We don't have any sitting here today, but once in a while we do. They're brand new. We got to be careful trying to apply certain disciplines or standards to a brand new individual because they don't understand even the reason for it. That's the biggest reason why a child has a problem with discipline is they don't know why. You've got to know why before you'll want to do it most of the time. And you have to agree with the why, too, which is a little harder. You've got to agree with why. Sometimes you might have to have some shocking things happen to teach you why. Some hurts that you take or someone else takes that gives you the experience, I know why you should not do this. That isn't something that happens at a very young age. You've got to have some experiences that you can look back on and say, I am never going to do this. I never had a family around me that drank or smoked. Never did, not in my immediate family. To my knowledge, my mother, my father, my mother's there, she can speak for herself. My immediate family never did get involved in anything like smoking, drinking, drugs of any kind. There was a very strong standard against anything that would cause you to lower your inhibitions or other things associated with some of those things. And part of the reason that I have never had a taste for those things is because it was so ingrained in me that this is the heritage that we have held. It was ingrained in me, this is our heritage. You know how many times I heard my grandfather say, I never did A, B, and C. And when he said it, you know what it made me feel like? Like, you shouldn't either. like I shouldn't either. How many times I heard him say, I stood for God. It cost me, but here I am today because I stood for God. And I could feel the presence of God over him when he was saying it. I could feel the covering of God that had been over his life. And yes, he had gone through difficulty. Yes, he had suffered. But God's covering and God's favor was on his life because he held to a relationship with God. Tried to hold his moral integrity, and I believe he held it to the very end. That's an example that will cause you to want to live like that if you respect the person. We don't want to lose the respect of the next generation. See, the next generation, whether you're talking about spiritual or natural, might look at us and say, I don't agree with what they're teaching or they're believing or their standard is of some kind, but I do respect them. You see, one day they'll grow up old enough, they may get a vision of why we believe what we believe, but they'll never be able to get to that place if they don't respect us for what we believe. You understand what I just said? I'm going to tell you what you better do. You better live such an example that they see something in your life, that they say whatever that person believes must have something to it because they're different. You see, your beliefs will color your character. If they're real beliefs, they'll color your character. There's a reason for the ambiance and the atmosphere of this assembly. There is a doctrinal basis that has created this. There is an order that has created this in terms of how we do things and hopefully that we're continuing to try to improve. I'm going to tell you where the really the core is. We have to be very careful, saints, as a church or even as a whole body of churches, a whole group of churches. We have to be very careful not to make our present state the object. I've seen people say, we are this, or we have this, or we have that. You better be very careful with that. That will create an elitist spirit if there is something good that you have. It will create an arrogancy about who you think you are. That is foolish. Because whoever we are right now, we're not fully who we are to be. What we ought to be thrilled about is we have been called to a higher purpose. We've been given tools to get us there. That doesn't make us better than anybody else, but we better be better. That should make us better. What we need to focus on is where we're going, not where we're at. You know what will happen if you focus on where you're at and talk about how great it is where you're at? You won't move when it's time to move. Not mentally. I'm not going to make any changes or I'm not going to question whether or not there's something deeper or higher because where I'm at is the best place you could possibly be. We're not yet in the best place we could possibly be. We believe in the restoration of the church, saints. Meaning we are striving to get back to the place that that first century church was at. There was something there that is not present in the modern church. More than one thing. There was a unified truth. I don't mean they agreed on everything. They had a whole council dealing with the issue of the Gentiles that they couldn't agree on. 15th chapter of Acts. What I mean is, though, what they preached as the gospel was a unified message. They didn't all preach their own version of the gospel. That's what's going on in Christianity right now. Part of the restoration of the church is that we get back to, and this is not a denominational statement, as I've told you here not long ago, back to the full gospel. I'm not talking about capital F, capital G, denomination full gospel, though some of that may be true. You know what the full gospel was based on? It was based on including the baptism of the Holy Spirit with a physical evidential element. There's a lot more to the full gospel than that. The full gospel is the gospel that produces the full product. The full gospel is clear in every one of its components. I've told you this and we talked about it. If somebody says that God is just one God and there are other gods that you can serve besides the one God, and they're not false gods, you don't have the full gospel. Part of the gospel is there's only one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him. And there's one Lord Jesus Christ, Paul told the church at Corinth. By whom are all things, and we by Him. He's the agent of God that carries out God's purpose. Now, if you don't understand that there is one supreme God and that He sent His Son Jesus and who Jesus is, you couldn't possibly have the full gospel. If you don't realize you have a need, as I've been saying a lot here lately, for salvation. If you're telling somebody, it's a wonderful thing to be in a relationship with Jesus. But if you want to be a Buddhist or practice the Hindu religion or Islam, that's fine too. No, it's not fine. There's only one true faith, saints. That's the tough thing about truth. Truth cannot have variations. It can have different perspectives in terms of looking at it from different angles. But truth is simply truth. You can't have different truths about the same thing. There can only be one truth about a singular element. There's only one true religion. That's a message that causes people's hackles to rise in this generation we're living in. How dare you say that my religion is false? I didn't say it. The Bible did. God did. How dare you say that the life I'm living in is sinful? I'm not the one making the measurement of your lifestyle. The scripture is. The media likes to talk about how there's born-again Christians, or maybe sometimes they'll say fundamentalist Christians, as if they are this little minority of extremist Christians. These ones who were fundamentalist in their beliefs. You know what they mean when they say that? They're not talking about somebody being filled with the Holy Ghost. They don't even understand what that is. When they say someone's born again or they're a fundamentalist, they mean they really believe what this says. And this has power over their life. This colors their choices. This determines the direction of their thoughts and actions. And how strange and unusual that is. There are no other Christians. How ridiculous to argue that it's the odd minority that call themselves Christians that actually believe this has power over their life power to change them and power to discipline their lifestyle and so on. That's not the minority. That's the only actual Christians. If you're willing to say this does not have the power to direct your thoughts and actions, you're not a Christian. Don't even use the title. We'd be better off if you didn't. We'd really have a better idea of who really is and who needs to be evangelized. Because there's a whole lot of Christians that need to be saved. Christians, in quotes. You know why? Because they don't really believe this. And they certainly don't accept it as an authority over their life. And until you believe it and accept it as authority over your life, don't call yourself a Christian. A Christian is just a word used to refer to someone a follower of Christ. You're not a follower of Christ if you're refusing to keep His commandments. If you love me, Brother Ryan just quoted, you'll keep my commandments. If you don't love Jesus, don't act like you're in a relationship with Him. Amen. Amen. If you don't really love him, don't say you're in a relationship with him. I'm a Christian. You're not a Christian. And I'd like to get a hold of some of these media folks and tell them they know they've got it backwards. I think some of them, they're doing it intentionally. That is a very manipulative method the media uses to marginalize anybody that truly is going to stand on scripture and make them look like they're this odd, strange, different minority. Praise the Lord. You have to think about praising him with me on that. Maybe I better explain why I'm saying praise the Lord. The true people of God were always the minority. They won't always be, but they always were. Jesus called them a little flock. They always were a remnant. Those that were delivered of Israel, even in the Old Testament period, during the different judgments of God, that term is used for them quite often. When they came back from Babylon, it was just a remnant. It was just a remnant that came back from Babylon. It's always a remnant. Don't expect everybody that calls themselves a child of God to really be one that'll help you a lot. There's no being here that needs to hear this today either. But if you're new to the Christian faith, that'll help you a lot if you realize not everybody that claims the faith is in the faith. And that's the problem with a lot of what we're dealing with in this present day is there's a lot of people that want to make a claim to faith without faith having any claim on them. That's part of you maturing. You can't just be a baby. Too many Christians want to stay in the babyhood phase of their Christian experience. They want to stay, even if they get past the babyhood phase, to being a child. I said, If you're using the growth stages of a natural child, it's from an infant to a toddler. Toddler usually starts around one year of age. You get a couple years later, you start to work into this stage of life you might call being a child, not just a toddler or a baby. That might fit in with what Isaiah said in Isaiah 28. It's in the ninth and the tenth verse when he said that they're weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. It's the same context where it says precept must be upon precept, line upon line, precept upon precept. Here a little and there a little. What is that, Brother Ryan? Who will teach knowledge? Who will teach knowledge? Who will he make to understand the message? And who will he make to understand? Those that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. You want to have some knowledge of God? You want to have a deeper understanding of God? To understand doctrine is what the second part of that says in the King James Version. You know you need to understand doctrine? You know you need to have some knowledge? Because if you don't learn some things, if you're not willing to grow in your education as a Christian, you are not ever going to be able to be weaned from the milk. It's precisely what Paul was talking about in Hebrews 5. I think I talked about the last time we were on this subject when he was talking to the Hebrews and said, I'd like to talk to you about Melchizedek. There's some very deep and powerful things in the allegorical message related to the Melchizedekan priesthood, but I can't talk to you about Melchizedek, not in any depths. If you read Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, all the things Paul said about Melchizedek, they were deep. And yet he's telling them, I can't talk as deep as I want to. What more could he have added? As deep as Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 are, Paul's complaining that I can't talk as deep as I'd like to. You know why? Because you still are on the milk diet. And when you ought to be teachers, you ought to have grown to the place where you could teach. I don't mean teach everything, but you ought to be able to teach somebody what the faith is. You ought to be able to teach somebody how to come to the Lord. You ought to have a grasp of the full gospel, saints, that I just mentioned a minute ago. If you can't tell somebody about the one true God and His Son Jesus Christ and about the state of sin that they're in and about what Jesus did to get you out of that state of sin and about what you need to do to respond to what He did to get you out of the state of sin and best of all, what will happen if you do it? If you can't do that, what in heaven's name are you claiming to be a Christian for? You better be able to do that. When the time came that you ought to be teachers in Hebrews 5, the end of that chapter, you have need to be taught again the first principles of the doctrine of Christ and are like them that are still drinking milk and need to be eating meat, is what he was referring to. When someone's a spiritual child, they are going through the process of being weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast, and they're going to go into the very next verses where it talks about how he teaches knowledge and doctrine, line upon line. Precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept. Now the reason he says it in repetition, a lot of times in Hebrew, when a a phrase or a word is repeated, it's to give it a heavy emphasis in terms of its importance. If it says woe, woe, that's intended to say this is very bad. It's not just bad, it's very bad. It's intended to really emphasize it when it repeats it. Another reason that the Hebrew language does this is to tell you it's a lot more than one or two. So when you say precept upon precept, precept upon precept, it's like saying there's not just one, there's a lot of precepts you're going to have to learn. There's a lot of lines you're going to have to put in place to understand the fullness of the faith. When a child's at this stage, that's when their reason, their logic, starts to develop. Not in an adult sense, but it starts to develop to the point where they can start thinking through and understanding some things. They might understand why things are the way they are. I've always thought that stage of childhood is one of the most entertaining, or maybe most interesting. When you watch a child go from a point where they don't understand why anything's going on to the point where they're starting to understand how things work, that's a very interesting stage. They will do one of two, if not both, things. They will manipulate the system. Oh, I know how this works now. I know what it will take to get Daddy to give me some candy. I just scream until Daddy can't take it anymore, Mama, whoever. By the way, that's the most foolish time to give him some candy because that's not going to calm him down. You're just going to give him a sugar rush and they're going to be ready for some more screaming real quick. They know how to manipulate the system. But there's another side to that in a good way if they're learning and being taught they begin to come to a place where they might begin to understand why things should be done a certain way, why things should be done the right way. I'm not talking about in some deep theological sense. I just mean they might start to come to a place where they start to consider the feelings of others. A baby doesn't consider your feelings. It's all about the baby. A baby is not thinking about whether or not mommy is tired or mama has got a headache or daddy has been up seven times during the night and maybe I just want to be quiet for a little bit longer, let him get 10 minutes more sleep. A baby's not thinking about any of those things. A baby's thinking about its immediate needs and getting them gratified. That's a lot like a spiritual child in the church. But we've got to grow up to the point where we start to mature enough to start to consider others. Children should come to that place. I mean, even spiritual children. I'll give you a verse to go along with that. 1 Corinthians 14.20, when Paul said, Brethren, be not children in understanding. Howbeit in malice be children. In terms of malice, you do want to be a child but in our understanding. See, we need to get understanding. Remember how it says it in the book of Proverbs? You want to get knowledge, and you want to take all the Scriptures to get this whole point. It's not just one verse that says this. But you want to get knowledge, you want to get wisdom. But with all you're getting, get understanding. Understanding's the why, saints. Why? Why should I act right? Why should I do right? That'll start taking you out of just being a baby in the Lord towards adulthood. Start to understand why. And I appreciate this about my children. I love them for this. But I didn't want my children just doing things that are right because I tell them to. That sounds great when they're at a certain age, doesn't it? I told them to do what's right and they did it. But every one of us know if we've had any gross stage we've gone through ourselves or if our children have grown through certain stages of their life, you know there's going to come a place at which they're not going to do what you tell them because you say it's right. They'll have to believe it's right to do it. It won't be enough anymore for mom or dad to say, this is what's right. Saints, we've got to get to a place where we don't even need to hear that anymore. We already know what needs to be done. Nobody ever has to tell us, let's act right. Let's treat people right. Let's be tender to one another. Let's watch our spirit. When we can get to the place where the only spirit we have to watch is the spirit of God, because our spirit is so in harmony with the spirit of God, we'll be in a very wonderful place of relationship with the Lord. We've got to come to that place. God intends us saints to grow morally strong enough to stand without the need for continual correction going on all the time. God doesn't plan on having to stand over us correcting everything we do. He wants us to become teachable, but He wants us to get to the place where we can be teachers. Amen. We know what's right. We could tell someone else what's right. If you wanted to compare them with the natural child stages, you could say that people come to a place where they are a youth, so to speak. They're in between childhood and adulthood. That's the most critical stage spiritually, you know. Now from the standpoint of you being a child of God at all, I imagine you might say it's more critical for someone to be born to become a child of God. But if you're going to remain in relationship with the Lord, the most critical stage is that stage in between childhood and adulthood. Are you going to hold on to your childhood or are you going to go on to adulthood? That's where youth is at. If we're talking about someone, it's a young person. In our jargon, a teenager. They're in the place in between childhood and adulthood. They're not a child anymore, and you shouldn't treat them like a child. We ought not to have to tell teenage children all the time what they ought to do and not give them a reason for it. We ought to be able to have the kind of conversation with them we can sit down and say, let me explain to you why there's a value in this. Let me tell you why this is such an important thing. Not just this is the rule, get over it, but here's why. Really give them some understanding. They're going to start testing their spiritual concepts when they get to that age, you know. I'm not just talking about natural teenagers. I'm talking about people at this place and their spiritual growth. They'll start questioning. Well, all my life I grew up in the church, and all my life I heard such and such doctrine or order or whatever that was used. They get up to this place, and it's a place that is very important because it'll take you up or it'll take you down. They come to this place where they have to establish these truths for themselves. It's not going to be enough for mom or dad. It's not going to be enough for the pastor to tell them what they have to believe. At that stage in your spiritual life, in between childhood and adulthood, you're going to be testing some concepts. You're going to be trying to determine whether your faith is true. You can develop, if you want to talk about it spiritually, some dietary habits that are unhealthy for you. You can start to take some things in because there's not as much constant supervision of a young person as there is a child, is there? But a young person gets more opportunities to feed on things that maybe aren't being monitored all the time. That's part of your spiritual growth. You have to have that opening in order for you to make the right choices. But that needs to be within a protected environment. The boundaries aren't gone yet just because somebody's at that stage of their spiritual growth. They might be getting to be more of an adult physically and maybe even in terms of strength. Their strength is an adult level of strength, but their wisdom is not. Strength does not always equal wisdom. Counsel is still necessary in order for someone to develop fully. And at this point is when parental discipline isn't just established, it's got to be enforced. Because there's times when people are in that age that it's very easy for them to go off in the wrong direction and you've got to really hold a strong standard in terms of your beliefs. It's a dangerous place to be. They're transitioning from just external direction to internal direction, meaning somebody telling them what to do all the time to them making their own choices. They have to make that transition. A child has to make that transition. You can't keep a child in babyhood for the rest of their life, coming to mom and dad for every decision. They have to become adults. The goal of the church is not to keep the saints of God in an incubator or a refrigerator. We are to be growing to the place where we can make the right choices without somebody having to constantly instruct us. We've got to grow to where we can make the right choices. God wants to develop us to a point where we know enough and are strong enough to stand on our own. We don't have to have constant supervision. It takes some spiritual growth to do that, though, and some understanding. It takes you coming up to a place where God's law isn't just external to you, but it's become internal. You're going to have to get to a point where the God of heaven has become so much a part of your thinking. His nature has become so much a part of your nature. You put your childish ways aside, like Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 13, I quoted earlier. You start to see if you're going to go to 1 Corinthians 13 or 2 Corinthians as well. He said this in both those epistles. You start to see the image of Christ developing in the mirror you're looking in. He said, now we look through a glass darkly. Now as we're being still worked on, now as our spirit is still being transformed, now as God is still constructing His image in us, now we're looking through a glass darkly, but then when He's done face to face, you're looking at Him in you. That sounds like something that would create arrogancy and pride. I promise you it won't. You get to the point where you're looking in the mirror and you're seeing the Lord, it'll create a reverence that'll come over you because you and I both know we couldn't possibly change ourselves into the image of the invisible God. I mean, our moral character, all by ourselves. If you look in the mirror and you start to see the character of Christ developing in you, you ought to shout glory. Not your glory, but His. He that's working in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. Praise His holy name. His good pleasure is to make you just like Him. His good pleasure is to bring you to full maturity. I said, you've got to go through all these stages. We've got to come to not just adulthood, but fully mature adulthood. When I hired new people at the different companies that I worked for, I didn't show them one time how to do the job and walked away and never came back to look at them and got working on something else and expected the product was going to turn out right. Many times I had to not only stand over their shoulder, but I had to work side by side with them until I knew they know how I'd do it. I'd work right beside them for a while, even if I had a lot of other things to do, because I knew it would be counterproductive if I turn them loose. They're like babies still. They don't have any idea how I want this done. I, I tried that when I was young in management. I just told them how I wanted it done and walked away and came back later and saw the craziest mess I've ever seen and had to do more work fixing it than if I just spent the time doing it right. But I worked beside them. And you know how I worked beside them? I didn't let them get away with this forever. I did most of the work to start with and say, see how I'm doing it? But eventually, I had them start doing it with me while I'm watching. And then once I saw that they could do it exactly up to the standard that I wanted, I didn't have to stand over their shoulder and monitor them all the time. God isn't intending to have a relationship with His people that He has to monitor your morality through all eternity. God wants to take you to a place where He doesn't have to monitor your morality anymore. Your morality is His morality. You think and act like He does. Your nature has been changed. I said here in the beginning, I'm going to try to bring this to a close. In child-rearing, they often focus on nurture and nature. Which one caused this child to be such a renegade? Was it the fact that they have parents that are renegades and just passed down some DNA to them that made them this way? Or was it their environment, the nurture element? We already have the wrong nature. You know what God does to bring us to having His nature? He nurtures us. Both things have to work in the kingdom. God takes you and He works with you. He interacts with you. He lets you feel His presence. He feeds you with His Word. He refreshes you with His Spirit. He gives you teachers. He gives you examples. Those aren't always the same people. There are many people that fill different roles in an assembly. Some of the best examples I've seen in an assembly is sometimes just a dear, precious saint who's been faithful all their lives, who you can just look at and say, there is an example of how to live for Jesus. We've got to come to a place where we've reached the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. What said right before that, a perfect man in Ephesians 4.13. What Philippians 3.14 describes as the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What Revelation 3.12 says is someone that is a pillar in the house of the Lord. And they go in and they come out no more. They're part of God's work and they never leave God's work. And they're a strong part of that work that helps to hold it up. Somebody that's got the law of God so deeply written on the fleshy tables of their heart that it's become so internalized that the weight of that is just gravitational to them. I said here in one of our Bible studies here just lately, when you really are your nature changed, it'll be just like gravity. You won't be thinking, I'm struggling with this or this is not really what I want to do. You're not thinking about gravity holding you to the ground. It doesn't feel like anyone's pressing on you right now to keep you there. Anybody frustrated that they can't float off their feet? You might be if you want to fly. If your desire in life is to float through the sky, if that's your desire, you might be frustrated by gravity. But I doubt anybody here today, unless your feet are hurting, I doubt anybody here today is wrestling with gravity and frustrated with gravity. Why in the world are my feet being held to the ground? You know why? Because it's an invisible thing that you don't even know is working. And when God is finished with you, it'll be just like that. You won't even realize you're being held in perfect harmony with the will of God. You won't even feel the constraints anymore. You will have gone to a place of full maturity. Inherently, you will be like God. That's what God was talking about in some of the prophets, like Jeremiah when He talked about how He's going to pour His Spirit out upon them, and Ezekiel, there's hints of it in multiple prophets. That they would have the law of God written on the fleshy tables of their hearts. You know, once it's written there, you won't feel it anymore. But it's got to be really written there. You're not going to feel it. There won't be some uncomfortable feeling. Oh, that's the law of God. I've got to obey that. How horrible that I've got to keep myself constrained in this relationship. You're not going to even know you're being constrained. You know why? It'll be who you are. It'll be who you are inherently, not just some external pressure holding you there. Somebody like this 37th Psalm, around the 31st verse, where it says the law of God is in his heart, none of his steps can slide. That's a pretty wonderful thing to think about, isn't it? That the law of God could be in your heart to such a degree that none of your steps would ever slide. Christ's character and disposition is so fully developed in you that those two commandments he gave are just part of who you are. You don't think about, I've got to love God today, I better be careful. My wife is celebrating her 40th birthday. I kiddingly told my wife I never thought I was going to be married to a 40-year-old woman. (laughs) I don't think she appreciated that statement, by the way. But you'd have to know my sense of humor. I said, you know, I've never planned to be married to a 40-year-old woman. But then I never planned to be creeping up on 50 either, so... The fact of the matter is, it has been one of the most wonderful things of my life, and I can parallel that if I am mature in my love for her, which I'm trying to be. I'm not, always, I'm not always mature in my love for my wife. Sometimes I don't love her like I should. We ought to be honest enough with ourselves to realize that. But I'm going to tell you one thing related to this whole subject we've been on for the last several weeks. I love her more now than I did when I met her. I love her far more now than I did the day I married her. And the day I married her was one of the greatest days of my entire life. I was so thrilled to be marrying such a beautiful young lady, beautiful within and without. I thought, how in the world, God, did you have the mercy to allow me to have a wife like this, to allow me to have a wife with such internal beauty, such a servant, such a lover of your people, such a fine Christian lady. I can tell you as much as that was a blessing to me now 22 years ago, I love her more now. Why? Is it that she's grown more beautiful? As far as I'm concerned, she has. You know, the more you get to know somebody you love, the more beautiful they're going to be to you. What ends up happening as you grow, as you grow closer and closer, that's the kind of love you're going to have to have the love of God. You're going to have to have such an intimate familiarity with Him because of all the time you've spent with him and all the interaction you've had with him, that you can find nothing else that has his value. And that's what I want for our assembly. That's what I want for every one of us saints is for us to come to the place where our maturity has reached such a great level that we know him like he knows us. We've got a familiarity with God that is not a casual familiarity, but it is a deep-rooted relationship that we have so much spiritual commonality with God that our thoughts and our actions are the thoughts and actions of the God of heaven.